morning everyone. We're reading from Romans chapter 2 and we're going to read the whole chapter together. It's Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God.
Let's ask God for his help as we come and read this passage together. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand what Paul has written here, what you have spoken through your spirit to us. And please convict us of our sin and show us our desperate need for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to uh, just imagine for a moment that it's Sunday morning at church here at St John's. Not hard to imagine so far, I know. But just imagine two very different imaginary blokes turn up to church. One man strides confidently into those foyer doors. He smiles hello to Ed and Anthony, shakes their hands, asks about their week. He's a regular here. In fact, he's been a part of the St John's Church family for as long as he can remember. Baptised here, married here, now a well-respected leader, and as he walks through those doors to find a seat, it's like coming home. He can't remember the last time he had to miss a Sunday. As he settles himself into his seat and starts talking with someone next to him, another man stumbles through the doors. His eyes are down on the ground and he's ashamed. His three-day-old stubble is rough on his chin. He reeks of alcohol. His clothes are dirty. He was out all night last night and he hasn't been home yet for a shower. His partner, he's not married, is home waiting and worried. He doesn't know why he's here. But he slides into a seat in the back and he tries to be invisible. The service starts. We stand and sing together. Troy reads to us from 1 John chapter 1. And then it comes time for us to pray. Time to praise God and confess our sin. And in the prayer, there's a pause. A moment to quietly confess and repent before God. Our first bloke is looking sideways at the second bloke. What is he doing here? Gee whiz, some people make a real mess of their lives. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that. I've never done anything too bad. Thank you that I follow you and do what you command and others look up to me too. Our second bloke misses all of that. Tears are running down his face and he's holding back sobs. His eyes are shut tight. Oh God, oh God, I've messed up. I've done it again. Help me, God. Have mercy on me. Let me ask you, which bloke is right with God? Jesus told a story just like this. A story that is meant to shock us. A story that's meant to shake us out of our religious superiority and send us running to Jesus. Because it's not the first bloke who's right with God. He's missed it way off the mark. It's the second bloke who got it right. That's Jesus' point in Luke 18. And that's Paul's point here in Romans 2 as well. Last week we saw God's judgment being poured out on those who turn away from him. Who refuse to acknowledge God and turn to worship created things. They satisfy their own sinful desires in sexual sin, gossip, envy, murder, disobeying their parents and more. Not just doing this stuff, but approving of those who do it. And God, in his judgment and anger at sin, hands them over to their sin and they are left without excuse. 
But if you were listening to that last week and thinking, yeah, that's right. Get them, God. They deserve it. Well said, Paul. Then you've got another thing coming. Because now Paul changes targets. See, it's not just flagrant sinners who need the gospel. It's not just wild living types. Religious types need the gospel too. Religious people need the gospel too because God's wrath is being stored up against unrepentant hypocrites who show contempt for his kindness. So buckle in because we're in Paul's sights this week. Paul is looking at you passing judgment on others. Now it makes sense that those who approve of sinful rebellion against God faces judgment, right? But what about those who don't approve of sinful people but pass judgment on them? Look in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you the judge practice the very same things. Ouch! (laughs) That stings, right? You can just imagine the people in Rome, the religious people in Rome nodding along to chapter 1. Yeah, they have no excuse. And then Paul turns to them. Therefore, you have no excuse. You're caught by your own judgment. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, just remember what Paul's doing here. Last week, he began his first major argument of the letter. We'll get to the climax of that argument next week in chapter 3. Paul's big idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's where Paul's going. Yes, God's wrath is being revealed against those mired in sin, but God will also judge those mired in self-righteousness, in hypocrisy. Think of your own judgments against others. Those moments when you're frustrated and angry with them. Maybe it's justified. I'd never treat others like that. I wouldn't forget about that responsibility. I wouldn't say harsh things like that. Who do they think they are? But then when you do those same things, you let yourself off the hook. I was tired and frustrated. They'll understand. I could use a little relaxation. They deserve it. Imagine if God took all your judgments... All those moments of self-righteousness, all those moments of quiet satisfaction as you compare yourself to others, and God judged you according to your own standard. How would you fare? Paul's saying we'd all fail. No matter how good you think you are, compared to others, you kick an own goal when you judge others in your heart. You condemn yourself. You're condemned by your own standards. Now, when Paul says that they practice the very same things, he's not talking about these specific sins. He's not saying that when they judge others for adultery, they have literally committed adultery. But they too have rebelled against God. They've turned away from God and worshipped other things. They've lusted in their hearts. They've envied others. They've trusted in their own goodness and ability to follow God's rules instead of trusting in God himself. 
Measured against their own judgments, they're condemned. The right response to sin isn't judging others, it's repenting. Verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You haven't been struck by lightning yet, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Don't think that God will be patient with you forever, that you've got a free pass. God's kindness to you now is meant to lead you to repent. Now, repent is a churchy kind of word, but the idea is pretty simple. It means to turn around, to turn away from our sin and turn to God, to run to God for his mercy and help, to stop indulging in sin or in self-righteous judgment and to turn to God in faith and in obedience. That's what God's kindness and patience is for. God is giving us an opportunity to repent, to turn to him, to find in Jesus the forgiveness and righteousness that we can never have on our own. Whether you're stuck in sin you can't deal with or stuck in self-righteousness, God's kindness is meant for us to repent to turn away from sin and turn to him, to keep turning to him each and every day. You can think of God's kindness like the gun amnesty in the 90s. Or think of it like the library amnesty. When you're a kid, you can return the books without late fees just as long as you return them. But the thing about those amnesties, and the thing about this amnesty, is that it won't last forever. That's where Paul goes next. He goes to Judgment Day. Paul now gives a clear warning to anyone who thinks they have the right to write off other people without repenting themselves. Verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word impenitent is literally unrepentant. Judgment day is coming for all of us. The day of God's wrath. The day when God's judgment will be revealed. Do you remember last week Paul explained that God's wrath was already being revealed right now. God is giving sinners over to what they want. But here in chapter 2 we find that God's wrath is also going to be revealed in the future. On the day when God judges everyone who sins. Either way, shameful sinner or self-righteous hypocrite, God's wrath is coming. So we better look up to God instead of down on one another. God's judgment is coming and that means what we do matters. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, Paul quotes from the Psalms, Israel's songbook, Psalm 62. God will render to each one according to his works. God is fair. He will judge all of us based on what we've done. He doesn't play favourites. Look in verse 11. For God shows no partiality. There's no special treatment for religious people. No bonus points for your family background, your pedigree, how impressive you are. God won't play favourites between Jews and Gentiles, although we'll see in a moment there is priority. 
He won't show favouritism between those shamed by their sin and hypocrites who are in denial about their sin. God's going to divide humanity along different lines. God is going to separate believers and unbelievers. Those who put their faith in God's righteousness now revealed in the gospel and those who don't. Those who repent of their sinfulness or self-righteousness, believing that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, and those who won't. Paul shows us these two groups in verse 7. I tried to split it up a bit on the slide. To those who by patience in well-doing seeks for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. On Judgment Day, there's going to be two groups. There are those who will receive eternal life, glory, honour and peace, and those who face God's wrath and fury whose just reward will be tribulation and distress. But notice that it's not those who are perfect who will be right in in that day. It's those who are patient in doing good. Paul's not talking about a group that perfectly obeys God and earns his favour by doing good works. He's talking about believers about those who trust God and who, trusting in him, seek to do good in the obedience of faith. That's actually what Psalm 62 that Paul quotes is all about. It's not about people who perfectly obey God versus people who disobey God. It's about those who take pleasure in sin versus those who wait for and trust in and seek refuge in God. That's many of us here, right? In his mercy, God has worked in our hearts to give us faith in Jesus. We have experienced the power of God for salvation. So we believe and seek God's glory, not ours. We strive to do good by the work of God's spirit in our lives. We live out that obedience of faith. And because of God's mercy in Jesus, we will enjoy eternal life with him, given to us as a gift through Jesus. But this second group will face God's wrath all on their own. Not because they're sinners, we are too. But notice they do not obey the truth. The truth about God made plain in creation and now the truth about God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. They have not responded with faith and obedience to Jesus as Lord. If that's you this morning, I want to warn you. You face God's judgment. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how long you've been at church, what your family pedigree is. On the day of your judgment, it won't be your baptism that saves you or your record of church attendance or your good life. The only thing is responding to Jesus with faith. Turning away from your sin and self-reliance to turn to him and trust in him alone. Will you do that today? Come chat to me later. All right, Paul. 
We hear your point about self-righteous people. Makes sense. But what about God's chosen people? Surely they get a leg up on the day of judgment. Well, Paul shows us God's surprising division. Paul takes things up a notch now. Now, for the first time in his letter, he mentions the law. The law, it's shorthand for the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And Paul's going to talk about it a lot. The law was sacred to the Jews. It was God's gift to them. And yet there's all these Gentiles coming to follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and they're not following every letter of the law. Will the law be what God uses to divide people on Judgment Day? Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I think we need to pay very close attention here because if we understand these verses, they help us unlock the rest of the chapter. Paul's comparing two competing ways of dividing the human race. Outwards and inwards. The first way divides human beings by looking on the outside, dividing between Jews and Gentiles. When he says Greeks, that's what he means. The religious with the law and all its Jewish privileges and the Gentiles, that's us who don't have the religious benefits the Jews enjoyed, like the law and the prophets and circumcision. But there's another way of dividing humanity, by looking inwards, dividing by the heart, between those whose hearts are changed by grace and softened and those whose hearts remain disobedient and hard. Which way does God divide humanity? Who will be declared righteous? That's the question Paul is answering. And these verses help us unlock his whole answer. See, again, there's two groups. But this time, the first group is Gentiles who aren't believers in Christ. They're those who've sinned without the law, and they will perish without the law. They will face God's judgment. We saw it last week. And then he talks about the Jews who aren't believers in Jesus. That's those who have sinned under the law, and they will be judged too. Hearing the law like the Jews did every day is no protection for those who don't obey it. It's not the hearers of the law who are justified before God. It's the doers of the law. Being righteous before God, being justified, means for God to declare that we are in right relationship with him. It's the opposite to condemnation. Who's Paul talking about then when he talks about the doers of the law? Well, it could be nobody. Like Paul's giving a hypothetical that nobody can actually fulfil. But Paul talks about justification for those who obey. And in Paul, justification, being right with God, is always by faith. I think it's more likely that he's talking about people who trust in Jesus as Lord and live in the obedience that flows from faith in him. That's the obedience of faith we saw in week one. That's the right response to Jesus, the one who was promised in the Old Testament and declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. When we trust in Jesus... We are responding rightly to God. We are living in obedience to him. The orientation of our lives has been switched from disobedience to the obedience of faith. 
and God graciously justifies us through Jesus. This obedience to God isn't how we get right with the God, God, but it is the real fruit of faith in Jesus. So, two categories. Those who do the law by trusting in Jesus and those who don't. Hearing the law is not the main thing that separates. It's faith in Jesus. Paul proves it by showing that this justification and grace even extends to those who don't have the law. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do, the th- do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. There are different ways of reading these tricky verses, but I think Paul's talking about Gentile believers in Jesus here. People like us. After all, it's believers who have the law written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The fulfilment of God's Old Testament promise. These Gentile believers, they weren't raised Jews. They don't have all the ceremonial privileges of the law of Moses. But as those with faith in Jesus, they want to obey God. They want to live according to the heart of the law. They want to obey God's good commands in light of Jesus because they've had a heart change. The Spirit has written the law on their hearts. God's division isn't outward, Jew and Gentile. It's the inward division of the heart. And God knows our hearts. Verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Our secrets aren't secret to God. He knows our hearts, our secret thoughts, our judgments. And on Judgment Day, he will judge our secrets. Okay, so for the Gentiles who don't have God's law, it's about faith in Jesus. But what about for the Jews? What does Paul have to say to those Jewish members of the Roman church who are relying on their Jewishness, on their outward appearance? These are the religious people who assume God will declare them right because they have all the outward privileges and ceremonies of the Jews. Let's look in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to blind, a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonour God by breaking the law. Paul's saying this. Okay, so you're not a shameful sinner living an outwardly depraved life, but are you guilty of hypocrisy? This is a danger for us too. Are we so busy talking about other people's failures that we ignore our own? Are we so busy judging the sins of our culture that we're missing the socially acceptable sins of our own hearts? 
If that's you, don't be hypocritical. God is going to judge your secret sins too. You know those secret sins in your heart? The sins hidden for the moment in your home? The sins that we think God doesn't see just because those around us don't see them yet. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repent. Paul brings it home with the ultimate outward physical sign of being a Jew. It's the ultimate religious identifier, circumcision. Paul says circumcision actually doesn't matter if you break the law. You can't put your pride in your religious identity and then disobey God. You will simply be left condemned. It's not about the outward sign, it's about the heart. See where he lands in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. We're going to hear more about where the Jews stand later in the letter, but for now simply see this. It is not about outward religious signs. It's about the heart. It's about obeying God's law by trusting in Jesus. And the law can't bring that about. Circumcision can't change the heart. It is the work of the Spirit in those who trust in Jesus. Because it's not just flagrant sinners who need the gospel, it's Jews and religious people too. We all desperately need Jesus. Last week we saw that God's wrath is being poured out on those who shamefully give themselves over to sinful desires. In judgment, God hands us over to what we want in this life. This week we see that God's wrath is being stored up not just against flagrant sinners, but against self-righteous hypocrites. We need God's gospel because his wrath is being stored up against unrepentant hypocrites who show contempt for his kindness. What's Paul's solution? There is only one solution. One power of God for salvation for all who believe. Sinners and religious, Jews and Gentiles, young and old. God's gospel that transforms the shamed to become unashamed. The same gospel that replaces our self-righteousness with the righteousness of God. There's only one response then. Whoever you are, run to Jesus. Repent and turn to him. Keep living in repentance. Every day remember your desperate need for Jesus and keep running to him. He is full of mercy and grace and kindness. Kindness to give us a chance to repent. Kindness to work in our hearts that we might trust in him and live in obedience to him. Kindness to give us Jesus, his own son, so that we might be right with him through him. We all desperately need Jesus. No matter how you walked into church this morning, you desperately need Jesus. Run to him. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, this passage stings. This passage stings because it speaks to us. We confess that often we are quick to judge others for their sin. And yet we stand condemned before you because of our own judgment and sin. Forgive us for those times when we have been self-righteous, when we have lived as hypocrites. We desperately need your forgiveness for us in Jesus. But thank you, Lord, for your word, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. That in the gospel we see your power for salvation to all who believe. We run to you in faith. We pray, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to live remembering our state before you and remembering your great mercy to us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.